Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Nicola Everett. Hello, hope you had a good weekend. Thanks ever so much for downloading today's podcast. It's Monday, July the 17th and our top story today is that a Dartford man whose dad was stabbed to death has launched a campaign to get bleed control kits put in as many places as possible. Matt Lane watched as his dad bled to death after being attacked by a gang outside their home. He now wants everyone to have access to life-saving kits in case of an emergency, very similar to how we can now get access to defibrillators and he's been telling Kate that since a recent rise in knife crime he's been motivated to take action. Bleed control kit is basically um, for critical bleeds basically so if you were to let's say for instance you're in an accident road accident uh, you fell over in a garden with shears in your hand and happen to land on them uh, or if you happen to have been stabbed so you would use this kit in order to basically save that person's life or hopefully save that person's life before an ambulance arrived. So say, for instance, you'll, you'll bleed out possibly in between four to sort of seven minutes, yeah, if if you've not been assisted to. Um, that ambulance may not be able to get there in time. Hopefully, the kit that we use will hopefully save that person's life or or at least assist in saving that person's life before the ambulance arrives. My dad was stabbed um, a couple of days before my 13th birthday. Um, now, the condition that my dad was left in, would, would, this kit would nowhere near have had a chance of saving his life. Yeah, um, his wounds were too extent. Um, but it always sort of ate away at me. Like, for like years, many years went past. It always sort of ate away at me. And um, I couldn't really do anything about it. And I came across... Um, my dad's post-mortem whilst I was moving my sister out of her house. And uh, I'd, I'd never read it until that point, and I decided to read it. And um, obviously it upset me a little bit, and then it got me thinking that maybe <clears throat> just stabbings are just a little bit too much at the moment. I mean, it always seems like these teenagers are just... It, it's, it's like they find their keys, their phone, um, their knife. Uh, it seems to, it's, it's almost like they just can't leave the house without it. And, it, you know, everybody knows somebody that seems to have been stabbed as well. And, um, yeah, so what I did was I started searching around the internet looking for these things. And initially I wanted to uh, put them in boxes, like cabinets, um, and then sort of launch them on high streets and things like that. But it was working a little bit too expensive at the time. So the cost of a cabinet's £400. And then once you've got, actually bought the kit, it was running into about sort of £500. And I thought, realistically, for that £500, I could get five kits. Yeah. So then the five kits I could then distribute around buildings that I thought were open most of the time. So uh, petrol stations, gyms, uh, nightclubs, things like that, bars. Um so I went along those lines there. I reached out to uh, Mir and I had a chat to those guys there and they started sending, they sent me across the first couple of kits that I purchased. Now, initially I you know, I purchased maybe four, I think it was, um, just self-funded them. I just decided that's what I wanted to do. So I thought I'd apply myself to that because I kind of feel like if you don't spend some of your own money, and try to push these things. No one really takes it seriously. We'll, We've um, seen um, quite a few instances of, of knife crime. It, it's been quite rife at the moment across the county. Yeah. Is, is your idea to sort of look at where these knife crime hotspots are and, if possible, get a bleed kit in there? 
Yeah, do you know what? I kind of feel like you don't really have a knife crime hotspot because they, these knife crimes, they happen and they just shock everybody. They shock the whole neighbourhood. They they shock the whole town. It, it, it's not like knife crime only happens specifically in one space or, or one road or, or one specific area because... <sighs> Knives aren't stationary. They're put in people's pockets or coats and they wander around with them. And when these kids get into trouble, I wouldn't even say it's kids, it's men, it's women. Uh, I, I, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know what if they feel vulnerable and that's why they carry knives around or... I don't know. But either way, they're not stationary. They carry them around in their pockets. There's no specific area that you're trying to target it's just it's knife crime in general. I just I just want everybody to feel that much safer, knowing there's a kit within 200 metres. Well, so far, 11 of the kits have been placed in and around Dartford, Kent and London, including nine schools. Kent Online News. Other top stories for you today. And police are hunting two men after a woman was sexually assaulted in a field in Canterbury. She was walking home after a night out when she was followed and attacked in Babs Hill off Spring Lane in the early hours of yesterday. We've shared a link to the description of the suspects via our socials. Firefighters have managed to stop a wooden pavilion at a football club on Sheppey from being severely damaged in a blaze. A bonfire spread to two containers and sheds on Queenborough Road in Minster last night. Six fire engines were called to tackle the flames. Council bosses in Swale have been criticised for scrapping free parking on part of Sheerness Seafront. This is actually one of our most read stories today because you'll soon have to pay to use the Ship on Shore car park off Marine Parade. It's become a bit of a hotspot for vans and larger vehicles which are left there for long periods of time. A Ferrari Ferrari driver caught doing 117 miles per hour on the M20 in Ashford has been banned from driving for 56 days. The 39-year-old was pulled over by police last August and claimed he was speeding because he needed the toilet. He's also been fined £460. Now, next today, families in a part of Folkestone say they're being forced to live in squalor as their properties are infested with rats. One mum has even had to move out of her home at Neen Court over fears her baby could eat poison left out for the rodents. While well, Anna Cleeton, Lillianne Hayward and Hayley Appleton all live there. We have mould, we have massive cracks in the building, um, we have overcrowding, we have a rotten front door, um, we don't have rats at cu- uh, currently because we've plugged in electronic pest control devices in every main room um, and hopefully that's keeping them away. It's just a nightmare living here. We have problems with the drains. Um, I've been reporting problems with the drains for a year. Um, we've just, everything's a problem. Everything's a problem in the block. We get a constant smell of sewerage and drains in our flat. If the person downstairs is also using their washing machine and we're using our washing machine. Um, my daughter and I are both disabled. My grandchildren are both autistic. We're in an overcrowded property. Um, it's it's just it's it's just becoming a nightmare living here. My mental health is absolutely wrecked because of it. It's just becoming a nightmare living here. Our flat is a severe rat infestation. I have a hole in my skirting board in my main hallway of my house. Yeah. I also have three young children at the age of one, two, and three. So we had to repair that ourselves because the council refused to do anything. 
On the other side is my kitchen of that wall. They've also trued through that skirt and board and there's two massive holes there. We had to board up the bit um, next to our sinks in the kitchen just so that they couldn't get through it, but they've just trued through the wedge that we boarded it up with. So it's just getting ridiculous now. The state of underneath our bath and this cabinet at the top of our stairs, they've got into there. And it's just ridiculous. Every morning I hover my kitchen because there's droppings literally everywhere. And of course I've got three young children. I saw five rats run into my ceiling. Um, there's dead rats everywhere because I put poison down. Um, it's literally horrific. It, you can't stay here. Mm -hmm. So uh, what have you tried to do about it by yourself? Put down rat poison? I've put down rat poison. I've written to the council. I've written to MPs. I've written to my school's written to MPs. They've put in a homelessness thing. And all the councillors say is that the housing is adequate and that we should all stay here. We've been in touch with the council. They say pest control have been brought in to sort the rat problem and they're also working on the drains. Kent Online reports. The parents of a four-year-old boy face a round trip of almost 100 miles to get him to school after accidentally ticking the wrong box on their application form. This is one of our most read stories on the website today and Lucy has got the details for the podcast. Well, Kaylee Allman, who lives on the Isle of Sheppey, has a little boy, Bobby, who's currently a pupil at Queenborough School and Nursery. She put that as their first choice for a primary school and for her second option, she wanted to pick Minster in Sheppey Community Primary, which is about 10 minutes away from their home in Rushenden. Instead, she accidentally went for Minster Church of England Primary School near Ramsgate, which is 42 miles away and a 51-minute drive if there's no traffic. Traffic. And this was where Bobby's been allocated a place. So what's his mum planning to do now? Well, she admits she made a mistake, but believes Kent County Council could have communicated with her better to make sure Bobby got an appropriate school place. She says she was mortified when she found out what had happened and is worried about her son missing the start of school in September. KCC did send the family an email to check the application was correct, but it went to their junk folder. They've now been advised to continue to apply for places at other primary schools and to lodge an appeal. Bobby's been put on the waiting list for the school in Queenborough. Staying with education news and we're being asked what we think about plans to rebuild a school near Sevenoaks. The £34 million project to expand Rootham School has been approved by the County Council. It'll provide an extra 250 places for pupils and a public consultation starts on Thursday. Elsewhere, the completion of a school in Ebbsfleet Garden City has been pushed back to 2026. Orcadon CFE Academy was initially expected to be completed this year but developers say high interest rates and slow house sales have led them to review the demand for school places. The secondary school is now due to take limited number of pupils in September 2025 in temporary modular accommodation before being fully completed by the summer of the following year. And the designs for a controversial new housing development near Herne Bay have been approved. 180 homes are due to be built in Hilborough on the outskirts of the town, but there are concerns it could cause traffic problems. The development will include a mix of houses, flats and green space. You can see pictures of what it could eventually look like at Kent Online. Kent Online reports. An auction in memory of a three-year-old boy from Deal has raised almost £10,000. Ruffy Holiday passed away in March from an inflammation of the brain linked to encephalitis and his family set up the Red Duck campaign to raise awareness. The money that they've raised will also go 
towards helping change the way the virus is tested and treated. A pub near Faversham that closed because of money problems is reopening under new management. A couple have taken over the George Inn in Newnham, which suddenly shut in March. They're planning to open next week and say they're ready for the challenge. Now, if you head to the website today, you can see pictures of the huge queues at Blue Water over the weekend after Sidemen opened their first store there. Meantime, bosses at Kent's biggest shopping centre have been telling the podcast how they've adapted to cope with changes to spending habits. It's more than 20 years since Blue Water first opened in a disused quarry near Dartford. Now, the land around it is being used for adventure attractions to keep encouraging visitors. And last month, plans were put forward to convert 10 shopping units into leisure space. Well, Chris Lane is the site manager of Hang Loose Adventure at Blue Water, and he's been telling our reporter Alex Langridge about their newest activity. It's an aerial tracking adventure, which means there's lots of obstacles at height. We've got two different height courses. One sits at around six metres and one sits at around 10, 12 metres off the ground. Each activity brings you know, more customers doing more things because people will travel further to do four activities than they will for one because they can make more of a day of it. So it's worth the longer drive. Uh, and that's what we're aiming to build a hub of amazing world-class activities which brings people together to come and try them out and i think as well as you said you know people want to come for a whole sort of day out which i feel like people want to do more nowadays so is that what you guys have found here at kind of hang loose yeah definitely this year's a little bit of a weird one lots of stuff's happened in the past 12 months and we're all well aware of the cost of living crisis which is a phrase we've all heard way too much of but it affects everything um so we're a little bit quieter this year than we sort of anticipated but we completely understand why that is. Um, but the general feel is people do want to get outside more, particularly after COVID, and try more outdoor activities and just you know, push themselves and their boundaries to have great experiences with their friends and family. And Alex has also been chatting to James War, who's the centre director of Blue Water. This is the fourth attraction now at Hang Loose to open here. How are you guys at Loose feeling about it? Yeah, we're up to four now. It's got real um, critical mass. I think that's it. It's a, it's, it's a, a day out in itself. It's not just about one activity. It's about, uh, it's about the others as well, if you dare go on the swing. And I know this adds again, doesn't it, to sort of Blue Water's leisure portfolio. You've got a lot going on here. So how is Blue Water kind of becoming this day out as opposed to just a shopping destination? Well, I think uh, it's this is about people's leisure activity, their leisure time. So shopping is just one of the things you do during your leisure time. So what we're trying to do is encourage people to spend more time here. Um, just come outside, see what it's all about. So we've got, we're incredibly proud of what we've done here over the years. And it's nearly 25 years now, and we've had this outside parkland that long. So now we're really encouraging people to spend more time outside. It's been a progression, and we've got the number one cinema in the UK already, but it's, it's, there's activity that's going on inside the building. But yeah, we've steadily uh, increased things out here, but it's, it's, it includes everything, including uh, uh, you, can, you, can, you can play golf here, you can uh, experience boats, you can just, just walk, just walk and people do. But then if you, uh, for adrenaline opportunity, there's, uh, there's everything that's going on at Hang Loose including the new activity. Kent Online Sports. Football first and the Gillingham manager is assuring fans they're working hard to sign a couple of new strikers. The Jills lost 2-0 to Millwall in a pre-season friendly at Priestfield on Saturday. It follows their trip to Italy the previous week and Neil Harris says they know they need some more firepower up front. We look like we got off a flight at half past 11 on Thursday night and trained for 35 minutes yesterday and Millwall looked fresh and sharp and... Um, the second half I thought much better you know um, 
you know, just thought we needed half time just to adjust and uh, and get going. I thought for the second half we were the better team and a lot more like us how we want to be, certainly playing here at home. Um, it's not not just about pre-season field, like results aren't important, we always talk about results, not important, um, but you know, to try and bed in good habits is key for us um, and how we started the game in our first 45 minutes wasn't ideal at home, I've got to be honest. But then what it enables me to do is remind the players of what's expected when you play at home for Gillingham and we put a much better second half, we just move the ball a lot quicker, a lot brighter, a lot braver with the ball as well. Um, and, and ultimately she's got a couple of goals herself and that's obviously just you know, clear to see at the moment that top end of the pitch is just where we, you know, we're looking at um, you know, recruiting. Positives to take though from, from the performance? Oh huge, yeah, it looks like everyone's got through okay. Um, obviously no Ollie Hawkins today which is, which, which is a shame because it really limits us on, on sort of, uh, that dimension of adding his physicality into it. Um, but he's not going to be out long. So um, yeah, just, just it's difficult because Millwall are trying to get into the Premier League. We're trying to get out of League Two, and we're trying. We're having to use, having to use. It's good to use, but having to use seven or eight players that are going to be playing B team football this year. So, a great exposure for them to play against international footballers and, and, and players that have played in the Premier League or trying to play in the Premier League, um, and just for those youngsters to see the levels. Um, of where they need to get aspire to get to, um, but out of it, yeah, that not just today, but if I, if I look at um, last Saturday to this Saturday, so we look at uh, Dover, Como, and Millwall, um, brilliant week, brilliant seven days. And I said the players don't look at today's poor forty-five minutes as an isolation. Look at the week, and we've had a brilliant week, tough week. Really tough week with the travelling as well and the heat in Como, um, but a, a really good week. So yeah, really pleased. Football aside, um, you and Gary Rowe caught a wreath out to yeah. the to the middle before the game to pay tribute to John Belson, someone you know very very well. Fitting tribute for him. Players wore black armbands. I asked you before the game for, for the stream what your memories were of of him, but uh, uh, emotional one for you today. Uh, yeah, really nice for me and Gary, um, somebody who's played against and, and, and known as a colleague. And, so, you know, in management, uh, for us to be able to share that moment together. I mean, nice for Mill fans to see past and current manager together. Um, it was nice to hear the fans, Mill fans, singing his name. You know, he'd, he'd have been, you know, he didn't have an ego, it wasn't about John Berylson, but he'd have enjoyed that moment. Um, yeah, so huge, huge loss to football, but it was just a, it was a small opportunity for us as a football club. Um, and people like myself and Dave Livermore and Sean Williams, for example, to pay a little bit of our appreciation and respect to him, um, but more more so for the, the Mill faithful to be able to, you know, to do that. But there's two football clubs, lovely moment. Um, um, yeah, sad, sad miss. Absolutely. Just finally, on chart on Tuesday, is it more of the same 60-30s? Is that, what, is that sort of going in, in your head, some do 90? Yeah, well, just have to be mindful given playing against a really good opponent yep. again, and 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 as we've seen, some of the young players just aren't ready for first team exposure. But at the moment, it's more about making sure the senior players get what they want um, and what they need to be ready. Um, so you know, it's another game where we want to be as strong as we possibly can, but in in the constraints of, of who's available. Gillingham's first league game is a trip to Stockport County on the fifth of August, and the club have distanced themselves from a group of fans who chanted disrespectful songs during a tribute to the late owner of Millwall. John Berylson was honoured ahead of the match between the two sides on Saturday, and in a statement, the club criticised the behaviour of a small minority. Now, as we continue the countdown to Paris next year, a Kent. 
Sports Paralympian says more still needs to be done to raise the profile of disabled sport. Will Bailey won two silver medals in the table tennis in Tokyo and is hoping for gold at the next Games in 2024. The 35-year-old from Tunbridge Wells says he's really looking forward to it and has been speaking to Lucy. It's going so well. You know, I'm training very, very hard at the moment and um, we've got a great club here. I'm coaching a lot of good young players that are coming through. So I'm, I'm coaching and playing myself and yeah, massively motivated. It's going to be like a, like a home games, you know, to have it on our doorstep in Paris. And yeah, it's going to be special. It's going to be so special. And what's changed in your life since the last Paralympics? And, you know, how's that going to affect you going into the Paris Games? Yeah, well, I, I, I was sort of 12 years based at a national training centre in Sheffield. So I, I was, you know, basically just playing every day, um, you know, working really hard, playing table tennis. That was my life. Now I've moved back here. I think I've got more of a life and more stuff outside of table tennis, which has actually made me a better player in a weird way because I'm not just thinking about table tennis and, yeah, I've had I've had a really good run. I've I've not lost a game since Tokyo in singles, so I'm really proud of that. And it's it's exciting, you know. These are the times in as a Paralympian you live for. You know, every four years these massive events happen, and it's when everyone knows about it. So you better win, you know. You better you better do well because it's the only time people are really watching. So I'm up for it. I love I love these occasions, you know. I'm, I'm realistic enough to, to know that these are the special moments, you know, so it's, it's it's good. And what's it like balancing your family life with your training as well? It's hard, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, I've got two young children, so it's, it's really hard now, two and five. And that's why I moved really back home, because I wanted to see them more. And in a way, like, it's helped me. I think it's given me a bit more perspective on, on like, just tables. And so I used to think that, it was literally the end of the world if I lost a game, and uh, now I go home and I see them and I think, oh, it's not, it's not really the end of the world. I mean, they don't care if I win or lose, <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it kind of helps. I think you know, it gets me, it puts things into perspective. And I've been lucky, I've been lucky in my whole career, you know, to have support by, you know, UK Sport Lottery funding to send me to all these tournaments to put in, you know, to put that pressure off my family as well, you know, so. I kind of can can compete and and sort of be the best player that I can be without putting too much pressure on on family and family life. Yeah, absolutely. And it feels like para events have really taken off in the last sort of maybe ten years or so. Maybe since since yeah. London was perhaps a turning point. Um, do you feel that? Do you sort of feel the momentum growing and more more and more people get getting interested in in para events? I think so. I think um, it's. You know, in Beijing 2008, my first games, I was working at the post. I was working at a post office, and um, there's old ladies coming into the post office, and they were sort of going, "Oh, it's nice that you can get out there and compete." And I felt like it was kind of a bit of a token gesture. You know, people didn't see me like I wanted to see them to see me. Uh, I, I, I've come for a lot in my life, and I, I, I had this hunger and fire in me, desire. I wanted to show how good I was, not just they should feel sorry for me, like I'm competing at, at a Paralympic Games. I wanted to see that I could be great, you know. I was amazing. Like, I wanted to show them, like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm amazing at what I do. I'm not just doing it because I'm, you know, because I'm disabled. I'm doing it because I'm bloody amazing. You know, I'm amazing at what I do. And I wanted to prove that to them. And I think over time, some perceptions have changed and it's got bigger. I think London 2012 was a massive part of that, you know. 
I still think it's got a long way to go, you know, in terms of like getting it out there, getting it into, you know, I think it could be promoted more. I think it could be, I think it could be advertised more. And I think not, not just table tennis, I think Paralympic sport is, is, is quite amazing because it's not just about the actual sport. It's not just about watching the sport. It's also about the stories behind those athletes and what they've had to overcome. And that's life, isn't it? That's, that's the most important thing about life having resilience, having that determination, desire never to give up. We all have massive obstacles in our life that we have to overcome. What about your own kids? Have they shown any interest in table tennis? Perhaps a <laughs> two-year-old two might be a little bit too young. but <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, the five-year-old Bella, I've been trying to coach her. I've been trying to tell her how to play and stuff, but she doesn't listen to anything I say. When one of the other coaches tells her what to do, she's on it. She actually works hard and she wants to listen. But if I tell her what to do, she's like... No, it just ignores me. So, but you never know. Hopefully, she'll get into it in a few years. I, I won't pressure her to to get involved, but she she picks up the balls for me in training. So that's 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 good enough. He's praised the national lottery for the funding they provide to Paralympic athletes. And in cricket, England's women have lost the Ashes after being beaten by Australia in their latest One Day International. Kent's Tammy Beaumont scored sixty runs in Southampton yesterday, but the hosts ended up just three short of their victory target of two hundred and eighty-two. It means Australia have an unassailable eight-six lead in the multi-format series with one game left to play. Well, that's all from us for today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Threads. You can also get details on the top stories direct to your email each morning via the briefing. And to sign up to that, you just need to head to kentonline.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast.